Hello, everybody. My name is Jeremy Franchese, and you are listening to First Floor Conversations, where the view at the top is only as good as the foundation which preserves it. Today in episode 69, we're joined by Paul Schwinn. Paul's an attorney at Shulman Rogers, one of the leading law firms in Washington, D.C., and an experienced transaction attorney, having spent north of eight years immersed in helping small and mid-sized companies navigate the waters of raising uh, capital, including angel seed funding, venture capital, and, uh, and private equity. And so um, today we're talking... VC funding. We're talking working with investor relations, managing dilution, and uh, and a whole lot more. Um, Paul, appreciate you carving out some time. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me, man. I've been a, a big fan of you and the show ever since we were introduced, and so to hear you uh, say the tagline live was awesome. Appreciate it, man. Shout out to Pete for uh, introducing us. That's right. Um, but uh, hey, everybody, thank you for tuning in. If you're on the video or you're tuning in audio, thank you as always for, for stopping by. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, as, as we alluded to, it's going to be a blend of everything from uh, the VC side, trying to raise capital, um, and we're going to try to help you prevent some blind spots and, and try to help you make it a productive use of time. So whether you're an executive, you are a founder, you are on the business side of the house, um, or quite frankly, you're a small mom and pop shop that is trying to figure out how to find working capital. Like raising raising capital is not an exclusive thing to tech companies, right? And so with that in mind, uh, because Paul is an attorney, we're going to have fun doing our first little disclaimer. So uh, button up. Um, so with that in mind, Paul is an attorney, which means I want to say the following um, as I read the script perfectly. Um, Look, uh, the goal here is, is is really to have a productive conversation and distill actionable insights um, and specific pieces of advice that you guys, myself included, really can use to make more informed decisions and uh, and create a more effective output. However, in the eyes of all factors legal, everything here is is designed to be purely commentary. So uh, should anything actually be brought to life, go consult legal counsel. And uh, how did you write that? I mean, it was a, it was a great disclaimer. I just wrote it. Really? Yeah. You nailed it. Thanks. We uh, we keep things rolling. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. Um, thank you guys for tuning in, uh, and uh, let's have some fun. So before we get into VC life and and uh, and really the heat of the the conversation, and, and I think right now is a good time to have the conversation because. The world of raising capital has never been sexier. You know, it's almost like a brand all its own relative to any other just financial instrument to growing a company. And so I think let's let's set the table here. And so with that in mind, like let's take a step back and just kind of get to know you a little bit. And so we'll we'll start here. Like is DC home? Like where, where's where's born and raised for you? Yeah, DC area is home. I was raised in uh, Durwood, Maryland. Graduated of Magruder High School in uh, 2007. Love it. And so, ever ever leave the coop, or have you really been been born, raised, local, building here for for the from the start? Left the coop for college. Um, so I was a huge sports fan growing up. I remember my dad handing me my first box score when I was like six years old and home homesick from school one day. And so, just totally fascinated by numbers, statistics, and how they applied to sports. Right. So I never had a chance of like getting on the field in the World Series. I wasn't that good at baseball, but I figured, hey, man, I, I could possibly get there if I was a journalist. And so I looked up best journalism schools in the nation with a specific eye for broadcast. And so the, the typical ones came up, Syracuse, Maryland, University of Missouri. I couldn't point to Missouri on a map. I was like more of a numbers guy than a geography guy. And so ultimately chose Mizzou, um, went out there for broadcast school and uh, yeah, got to scratch that itch. 
That's super cool. I'm with you on that. I'm not a geography guy. Yeah. Um, that's super cool, though. What, what was it? So was it the sports was the genesis of, like, following journalism as a passion? That's right. That's right. Was there a game or, like, a moment that you saw and, like, the, the story itself was compelling? Or was it just the whole experience was what, what kind of drew you? You know, I, I, Scott Van Pelt is from this area, right? Sherwood grad, which is actually one of our rivals. And uh, I just admired watching his demeanor on SportsCenter, and I just wanted to be him. Or I wanted to be Dan Helley, right, who's the NBC sports anchor uh, for a number of years there. And so journalism was the, was the way to get there. And so I figured uh, I'd chase that. Smart. I mean, I, I, it's a lost art, right? We're, we're in a world where we kind of day trade attention in a way where um, – it's a lot of headline reading. So the ability to build a really, really well-designed story. You know, when I interviewed um, Nancy Kidder, she's a, a professor at American University, um, which for me was a, a very fun moment because uh, American, you, you put me on the uh, the wait list. So <laughs> shout out that. Um, now, it was just one of those moments where she, she designed and implemented a course now that's been at American for probably four or five years now called um, Writing and Fighting or some, something like that. Apologize, Nancy. Um, <laughs> but, but it really it breaks down the, the writing and journalism through the lens of mixed martial arts and combat sports because there was a time where you couldn't watch it on TV. You, the only way to consume the experience of the moment and that, that experience, that event, was by reading it. And so from the, the, like, the days where there was not just it, – it combined everything from racial tension to socioeconomic breakdown – the whole world was able to be packaged through that fight and the way you communicated that evolved this technology evolved but the the root of it was always how compelling and raw is the story it evolved and got lost right we're 140 characters or 280 how many are you allowed on twitter now 280 yeah it's enough to 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 move a million tweets a day right Sure, but it's hard to tell a story like that to that level of detail where someone can feel like they're there and i was a part of kind of that that transcendence, that transformation, right? And it was happening around me at this at the journalism school. And I credit Mizzou for like, they developed a new program entirely called Convergence Journalism, where you're a part broadcast guy, part script writer, part everything, because you got a one-man bandit. They saw where the journalism industry was going. Meanwhile, Paul was sitting here like, I want the cushy job. I come in at 6.15, I'm on the air at 6.20, and I talk about sports, and then I leave. That's not what's happening in journalism now. And that's part of the reason why I looked into the backup plan. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, it's it's storytelling at scale, which is the fun part. I mean, that's why I like what I do, but but it also is the attention graph is changing, um, but it's still finding facts, uncovering what the best way to tell the story is, which is really similar when you're working on raising capital, because a lot of times it's it's not just the the recurring revenue and accounts receivable and the the profitability of the business. Like you need to sell where you're going. You need to tell a compelling story and build an emotional connection with an investor beyond just how exciting your your cash flow looks, right? Yeah. Um, but, but with that in mind, you know, we'll, we'll dig into some of the back end as we, as we go relating to like the pivot to journalism. Um, but I, would love to understand and set the table on the, on the fundraising side. I think that oftentimes we, uh, put everything into one bucket when it comes to, I'm going to raise capital. But in reality, there are a number of ways to go address that problem or opportunity, depending on how you want to look at it from angel seed rounds, um, Hell, you guys remember what banks are and going to get a loan, <laughs> right? Sure. There's a lot of ways to tackle raising capital. Can you help us understand what options are on the table and really how those break down for us? Yeah, and you mentioned angel capital, and I, I can speak to that because just a little bit more about my background. Uh, when I was in the middle of law school, I decided to chase my MBA. I didn't earn it by doing a podcast like this. You know, I probably should have, but um, I, I spent an extra year in law school, got my MBA, and while I was there, I had the chance to serve on the board of an angel fund. 
And that was my first experience with like venture capital, early stage capital, raising money, what have you. And it was incredible. We, we got to see 30 pitch decks a month and I really got to see what that art was like. And so, um, yeah, I've brought it to bear now. And so what, what types of instruments were we looking at? I mean, aside from bank financing, which is generally available to folks who have collateral they can put up or an experienced business that you can lend against, most startups don't have that, right? So you're looking at the equity markets. And you're not a public company. You haven't done an IPO, so you're going to have to do a private offering. There's typically two ways or two categories of private offerings that we see most frequently. One is your traditional Shark Tank venture round. I'm going to give you a million dollars in exchange for 10%. And after my million comes in, I'm a stockholder with you, and we're partners. Another avenue is... It's a little softer. I'm going to buy an instrument that will eventually, in the future, convert into that equity. Okay? So when we're talking about those, we're talking about safes and convertible notes. And for the first financing that we're seeing with most of our clients, typically we're looking at that second route, safes, convertible notes. Why is it that they go down that path? Is it from somebody, because I think the truth is, and I think one reason I've done reasonably well is I'm pretty self-aware around my blind spots and I bring people in that are great at that area. And I think a lot of people, when they get into the raising of capital, they may not be financially savvy. They may not fully understand a financial instrument like a safe um, or understand really what they're looking at because all they're looking at is a number that they need to build the business and what that means in exchange. So, you know, why is it that people are pursuing safes and what's that stand for, by the way? Oh, safe stands for simple agreement for future equity. Got it. Okay. Is that the same thing as a convertible note? It's it's very similar with two very important differences. So I can explain what a convertible note is to get started, and then I can tell you how yeah, safe's different. That'd be great. Convertible note. So you, I will invest in your business. What kind of startup do you have? You got you got a marketing company, right? right? So uh, you need capital to grow. Can't go to the banks. You don't want to sell me equity. And this is to answer your question: Why most people don't immediately sell equity? Because once you do that, I'm your partner. I'm in for life right? And you have to sell me equity today at a valuation that might not be that high. What do you have? You got a couple lights, got some mics. You're not worth much, right? So I'm going to take you to the cleaners. I'm going to get 30% of your company day one. No, you're going to offer me a safe or a convertible note. And so here's how a convertible note works. And then I'll explain what a safe does. So I'm going to lend you money in a convertible note. It's got a maturity date, it's got a low rate of interest, just like any other promissory note. And that's going to walk, talk, and quack like a promissory note. I love it as the investor because if you go under, debt gets paid before equity. All right, so I'm going to be the first one paid if you really go under. All right? The, the difference from a convertible note and a promissory note are these features where I can convert into equity in the future. There's three primary times I'm going to be able to convert into equity. First one is the most common one, when you raise your next round of funding. And when you raise that next round of funding, I'm getting in and getting the same thing that they're getting, but at a discount because I took earlier risk. So typically we'll see anywhere between a 15 to 30% discount. So if your new investor pays a dollar for equity and you're selling Series A shares, I get it for 70 cents um, and I'm getting the same thing that they've got. So that's why it's, it's interesting for everybody involved. The difference, the other two situations where you'll convert are sale of the company, if it happens, or maturity date. So just like any other promissory note, a convertible note's going to have a maturity date. And at that time, it's negotiable, but most times it'll convert into equity at a predetermined valuation. 
and we can talk about what that valuation would be. It kind of depends. But so that's a convertible note, right? We're, we're a debt instrument. It's got a maturity date. It's got an interest rate. And we're going to convert in certain circumstances. Simple agreement for future equity. Y Combinator came up with these in 2013. They've been tremendously successful. They said, hey, stop paying Paul Schwinn legal bills, right? It, these lawyers are getting in the way. Let's just have two negotiated terms. Forget the maturity date. Forget interest. All convert at a 15% discount when you raise money in the future, period. Very, very easy to document a transaction like that. Just, here's, I guess, what I think about. And um, again, like I've, I've taken pride in like not taking debt to build the business and, and really try to focus on, you know, I was on a call yesterday actually with somebody and, and talking about like, like a lot of credit and just trying to build some security against growth, right? Just to make sure uh, we're, we're in a safe position. And um, it was one of the things I was kind of joking. I was like, I'd love some advice here because I don't have a business plan. I focus on building quantifiable value with clients and getting hard contracts for long-term commitments. So like, whereas I don't have a hard business model or a on-paper documentation of the, the expectation of the business, like, you know, from an eyes of somebody putting in money, they're looking at risk mitigation and potential returns. So from a psychology standpoint, does it tell an investor something? How do I word this, right? So if I'm getting in, involved with a, re a relationship with an investor and I'm looking at those options, a safe, convertible note, or equity, does one say that a, a founder, and an entrepreneur has more confidence in their business than the other? Like, is there a way to like interpret it where it's like you're kind of pushing off the real commitment? It's kind of like, you know, you've been dating somebody for eight years, you're not married yet, whatever the deal is. It's like- sure. You know, are you really committed to the relationship? Like, sure. do they tell and do they? I guess the right question is this: In those options, does the one you go with tell an investor anything without telling them? It's a very good question. Uh, if I had to speculate, I would say the safe is going to tell the founder or the investor that the founder is very confident, and I'll explain why. If we're going to do a price round, which is the situation on Shark Tank where you get ten percent for you know five hundred k. That's me communicating to an investor, perhaps, right? And every situation is different. Oh my God, that's a great deal, right? I'm willing to give up 10% for 500K right now. Typically, we have conversations about safes and convertible notes. Why? Because the founder says, this company's worth more than $5 million today. But it, you can't support it in the books. You can't support it on your sales. You can't support it. But I've got confidence in myself, and it's just a matter of convincing an investor to kick the can on valuation, and I'll show you that I'm that I'm worth something more. So it's basically de-risking the, the gray area. It's saying, look, I know it's worth it, you know it's worth it, but neither of us can prove our stance. So rather than lowballing me on an offer or me giving up too much, let's just agree to start the relationship here and we'll evaluate it when it really comes time to raise capital. You nailed it, it's a win-win. An investor wants a piece of your business and you want to give them a piece of your business and it's just a matter of finding a middle ground, right? So when, with that in mind, right, I, I mean, can anybody issue that type of a contract as long as they have good attorneys on staff? Like like a VC, a private equity firm, like do all of them approach deal making the same way with these, these possible financial transactions or do they have typical strategies like a VC approaches, you know, investing this way where they don't like that because they want equity on day one? What's what what should people know when they are walking into the door of a venture capital firm or versus a private equity firm? Like, sure. are, are there differences? Are they the same? Yeah, there's there's different investor profiles. I think this is a perfect time to bring it up. And this is going to grossly oversimplify it. But let's talk about the different stages of your business. So on the earlier stage where you're going to see seed capital, angel funds, high net worth individuals, they're largely placing small bets on companies they hope pop. 100k return or 100 times return, what have you. So 
they have a different approach to investing than a private equity fund. So a general private equity fund or venture capital fund, you know, not me, but other people with more money uh, will invest millions of dollars into a fund. It's going to be managed by somebody. And those PE or VC managers are going to select investments. And I'm putting, as an investor, my full faith in, you know, in this fund to manage my money well. So when they place investments, when a VC fund or a PE fund places an investment, they've got people behind them that they need to please. And what does that mean? I need returns now, and I need a clear path to exit. You're going to hear that more from a PE fund than you're going to hear from an angel fund who happens to live in the neighborhood in which this restaurant's being open and wants to be able to get their name on a particular dish and is therefore willing to throw you $100,000 to help you open your restaurant. The, the investor profile often dictates how that conversation is going to go. And so if we're talking early stage, first round, we'll see convertible notes and safes from those angels and high net worth individuals who don't want to get into the details, hire a lawyer you know, to negotiate hundreds of pages of documents which you're going to get when you have a priced round. Right, of course. Makes a lot of sense. So in many ways, what, what, do, what do people do when they, like, so you wake up, you realize whether it's growth capital because it's speed to market, or it is, you know, we need working capital, right? Raising, raising capital isn't always, there's a lot of reasons to go find money. At the end of the day, it's, it's an instrument, you know? And I think if you look at it as a resource, it's like I have a, a laptop that's worth $2,000. Like, it's not cash, but it's currency. It's just mm -hmm. not in the form of legal tender, right? Sure. And so when you're looking for, for to accumulate resources that can help you grow, sometimes it's human capital, sometimes it's financial capital. How, how, do, how do people that maybe don't understand or have never gone to go raise capital, what should they do first before they even get in the room and talk about their deal? I think so many times we want to like pitch our deal and they want to tell their story and they want to just go ask people for money. Um, but there's probably a lot that needs to go into it before you're even ready to like present a real viable offer to a real potential investor. Yeah. And, and every one of these situations is going to be different. Some VC funds and PE funds certainly will, will serve up your term sheet. So you're not necessarily socializing a term sheet that you've come up with. Um, you know, as an advisor, I'll be the first to tell you, it's good to get people around early, right? Get your lawyers. We've got, you know, here at our firm, not to give us a shameless plug, but flat fee programs for the first 10 things you need to do for your startup. So you know I'm paying 750 bucks to form my company. I'm paying 1500 bucks to get my form offer letter, right? And our, our whole approach there is to kind of make it a lost leader of sorts to get people in the door so we know that they're competently you know, getting counsel before they go into that room with a potential investor that could like stay with you for the rest of your company, right? Um, so with that, right, so we got get your advisors around. Another thing I certainly recommend is put together a rough budget, right? Like if I had... 500k what could I do with it right I would hire 10 people I would lease this space and that's gonna that's the minimum I need to get to this inflection point at this inflection point I'm making sales my valuation is going to be higher that's awesome uh, I'm going to raise the minimum amount of capital I need to get to that spot and every investor you can really impress investors by going in there and saying I'm looking to raise 300k and here's what I'm going to use it for and here's why I'm only raising this much because it's going to get me to this level Right. So that's like kind of the preparation you can do in advance of one of those meetings. Um, so that's two things. Right. One is get some advisors in your corner Two, make sure you've got an awesome budget and like outline for what you would do with that money. And three would be get prepared. Um, I have to mention one of my clients here, uh, 
we were doing a $10 million Series A, I believe, for Fund That Flipped. It's based in New York, although he just the CEO just moved down here to, to D.C. Matthew Rodak, you know, I have to shout out to you. I tell everyone about him. We, as lawyers, sometimes to slow the deal process down, we'll send a diligence request list to the other side. And this is like a 10-page document, the most boring thing you can possibly read times two. And it's like, give us every contract you've ever entered into in Puerto Rico and put it in this folder. Give us every contract where the lawyer was left-handed, put it in this folder. And so opposing counsel served up Matt with a diligence list that you you call Guinness with, right? It was a long one. And this guy had that data room filled with every folder in a day, way faster. We were expecting weeks. And when... That was like the first impression with this investor that speaks volumes. It was one of the smoothest deals we ever worked on because why? Matt was organized. So if you're going in to see a VC, three things that are really important. One, make sure you've got advisors. Two, make sure you've got a budget. And three, make sure you're organized, right? Have all your documents ready to roll. You know it's not novel stuff. Everyone's going to ask for a cap table. Have one ready, right? Everyone's going to ask who owns your business. Don't say, I wrote on a napkin once that my brother gets 5%. Make sure you have everything documented. And if it's organized, you can make a really strong first impression. That's very impressive. He's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's one of those things that is, as we build the uh, process of, I always talk to people about like they, they get a job and they try to become the character that they think is best suited for that job because in their mind, becoming that character works, right? It's like if you want to go into advertising, you try to become Don Draper. Like, don't, don't do that. Just like be you, but a competent version of yourself, you know? But like, because things like that sell the deal way more than you trying to put on the costume of an entrepreneur. For sure. You're showing up to a first date having shaved, tucked in your shirt and everything. And it's not hard. Everyone knows, tuck in your shirt, brush your teeth, but not a lot of people think to do it. And a lot, not a lot of people realize, they, they can realize the importance when you're going on a first date. They don't always realize the importance when you're having a conversation with an investor. And also, I think sometimes you, the idea of a mirror, mirroring the people you're with is sometimes lost because there's plenty of people that don't wear, you know, a $2,000 suit that are worth, you know, how much. Sure. That they're looking to see how, it's not about how you present yourself in the eyes of what perfect look like. It's how do you handle yourself? Because when somebody's investing in you, what they're investing in is the majority of the time spent not being together, knowing that they can blindly trust you to do the right thing every single time. Oof, that's a great way to put it. You know, it's, I've never heard it put that you way. You know, it's like, and yeah. it's like, I talk to my employees a lot about that, you know, and, and back to a different podcast when I interviewed, and I think we've talked about this, um, I interviewed Ann Cowell Smith, I think it was episode like 50. Um, but she talked about, uh, uh, you know, all the opportunities in the space between people. And I look at that in every way. So when I talk to my copywriter, Gabby in, in Texas or, you know, Alicia, what's up if you're editing this? Um, <laughs> you know, like uh, it's the same thing. If we feel like th- if we feel like there's distance between everybody, the work will show, the value will show, the story will show that nothing feels close, you know. And and I think in an investor relationship, though, again, speculation, I've never indulged in, in raising funds. It comes down to can they trust you when you're not in the room to do what they would do? in generally speaking, the same scenario. For sure. But a lot of times the founder could be brilliant, have a great idea and have the best of intentions, but just not be groomed in the way to show as best as possible. And that's where your advisors come in. I mean, this is my first time doing a podcast. What do we do? You called me four days ago. You're like, Paul, this is how it's going to go down. All right. Here's this, you know, here's some things we're going to talk about. You know, don't forget to shave. You groomed me in the way that I would groom one of my clients, right? So that I can look as good as possible. And you did a great, I hope you did a great job prepping me for this. I don't know. Any curveballs coming? You're crushing. (laughs) We're, uh, we're, we're, we're rolling. That's actually a good segue. 
All right. I'm just kidding. But, but I, I do want to motor us through as we go, right? Sure. We, got, we got a packed day. And so for those listening, normally we do a solid hour. We're, we're going to probably end up doing a 35, 40 minute podcast here. Um, but we can always circle back for another episode. Sure. Um, with, with that, right, I want to I want to touch on a couple things. One is a pulse of the market, right? I think oftentimes we spend so much time in the D.C. If you're in the L.A. market, right, depending on where you're listening in New York, you uh, hyper, I think you over-index on your, your, your neighborhood thinking that that's what everything's like. But the truth is, there are big markets that are raising capital, and then there are the small towns in the middle of America that those businesses need help too. Um, there's fast-growing tech, there's the Silicon Valley world, but there are certain KPIs and indicators that can help us understand the state of the market, and, and you were helpful enough to send over some resources. And, and so this is kind of in parallel with a lot of people look at the stock market as the health of the economy. I think at this point, we understand that that is fundamentally not the right correlation to draw um, or to use to draw a conclusion. But that being said, there was a study that I think is worth referencing and really want your feedback on what this kind of tells us as small business owners, as founders, as people that may be going to raise capital, really is like, what is the psychology of an investor, right? Um, And if you guys don't know, Fenwick and West, um, they do a lot of research and analysis. Um, I I think from what I could tell, it seemed to be kind of like a Gartner, kind of like a, a, not like a NASDAQ. I mean, they they do a lot of data analysis surveys and just understand the pulse of the venture capital world. A lot of it seems centralized in either certain industries as well as Silicon Valley. Um, But what they found was after analyzing 229 venture holdings in the Silicon Valley area, um, this was back in Q4 2020, so Mm -hmm. not that long ago, um, they had the highest uh, percentage of up rounds since Q2 2019, lowest percentage of down rounds since 2015. um, And in other words, and I'm I'm reading this off of, it was pulled from their website, you know, valuation results rebounded from the prior quarter, but ha- remained down from pre-pandemic levels. And so if we normalize the findings and, and we take a look at everything, um, things are appearing to go in the right direction, but they've yet to fully recover. Um, but if valuations are up, owners are not optioning to get rid of their their stock. I mean, people aren't selling, but the value is going up. Um, is there anything that we can pull from that when it comes to the appetite of, of a common investor um, or just at large? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And, and admittedly, I think their surveys are always based on, you know, their client experiences. They're not always pulling data from from other other deals, but I think it's reflective of at least my experience here in, in our world with our team, right? 15 plus lawyers doing doing kind of deals like this. Um, if I had to explain why valuations are going up, so you're saying up rounds, right? That means the valuation has gone up. Down round means that we're, we're selling at a price less than what we sold at Correct. last time, yeah, right? Valuation lower than what we sold at last time. Right. In, in other words, people are raising additional funds and the value of their business on paper is up. Yeah. And so two explanations I can come up with, or at least one, right? Uh, PPP loans, available to a lot of early stage companies, which was you know, paycheck protection program loans. Um, those were, I don't want to say free, but if you spent them on the right you know, types of things, you get that full amount of the loan forgiven. What did that do for the VC space? Sold, saved so many companies, right? Because you don't have to raise a million dollars, right? It's coming from the government. And so therefore, who's raising money? folks who can kind of afford to do it, right? And if you can afford to do it, your business has probably grown during the pandemic. I'm thinking of biotech companies, stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, that's that, that to me tells me why a lot of companies are going up. Another reason is, um, you know, we're not seeing as many of our clients who are issuing securities meeting new investors per se. And that is to say, it's difficult to go out there, pound the pavement in the middle of a pandemic, have someone come to your offices and diligence your company when everyone's wearing masks. So what are they doing? They're sticking with their current investors. 
and their current investors already have stock in the company, right? They're not going to burn you on your valuation. At a minimum, they'll keep a flat valuation, if not a little higher. And so when you're friendly with your investors already, they're always willing to be a little bit friendly on the valuation so that you can save face and not have a down round. That's a super interesting insight that I genuinely did not consider when it comes to the new investor relationships. So if you are going, because why would they devalue their own stock? You know, it's just an insurance policy against the potential for future good. But at the end of the day, why would they cut their own legs out? It's a, it's a really good point. There, there are some some bells and whistles in there called anti-dilution protection, which I'm almost in 99% of deals, right? So it would have helped them to, yeah. to technically undercut the, the, the company. But no one wants to cut a founder at the knees. Most of the sophisticated, awesome investors that we work with are the kind of guys who are like, I want the founder to have a good chunk of equity because I know they're going to keep working hard. They need a skin. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. Hear that a lot. They need skin in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Which, and, and if we can get there with the time we have, um, I want to talk about the, what I look at is like investor etiquette in the dating process, right? Sure. Because there's a need to, in many cases, inject capital into the, the business quickly, especially if speed to market is a top priority, right? But at the end of the day, you want the, if I, if I can draw a crude analogy when it comes to dating, like you want to close the deal, Right. And, and, and you want to you want to have what, what we'll look at is that one night stand. But the truth is, you do need marriage when you're looking at VC funding, angel funding, um, even a PE firm. You need to know that they see the world in a similar light unless all you're looking for is dumb money where they're just a, a blank check and that's all you care for. Sure. Um, but you, but how, how can entrepreneurs and founders go about the dating process to make sure that they find somebody that genuinely is a good fit for them and their company because they are a real partner. They're going to have to be heard because they're going to want to be heard for the most time. Sure. Um, but how do you balance needing the capital quickly, but also making sure that you're not operating in a short-sighted capacity where you may not be looking at the details? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll start with kind of like uh, some expectation setting or, or, or setting setting, if you will. Uh, PE firm, right, going to be in your lunch, right? They are controlling the business. So it's very important to find somebody that you mesh well with. Angel, seed, you know, high net worth individuals who aren't really familiar with your industry, they're just taking a bet on you, not as important, right? They're going to open up their Rolodex to you. They'll introduce you to anyone that they can to be helpful, but you don't have to worry as much about the relationship as long as they're not going to be a pain in the, can we say, in the rear? Okay. (laughs) As long as you you get the sense they're not going to be a pain in the ass and you're going to be able to get that feeling from them in the first interaction, right? Then you're fine, right? Take the money that you can. So it really is very similar to dating. You're going to get a feel for what they're like. Things you can do to diligence them right, is uh, do your research. Ask them for the names of three other founders in your industry that they've supported and then talk to them. It's a pretty easy ask. And if the VC firm or PE firm is comfortable and they're, they're in your space as much as they say they are, they're going to be happy to give you names. But I will say, you know, not all of our clients are in a position to be that selective, right? Most of our clients are not raising money for the headlines. They're raising money for the paycheck, right? Like, you know, they've got payroll to hit in seven days, right? So um, in that sense, you can't always be as selective as you like. But when you can, you know, helps to ask for some references. Definitely. We got about 10, 15 left. So I want to motor through a couple things, not to rush it, but to hit it and, and touch on it. One question I think that never gets asked, but I think people should understand this because it's like, again, I'm single, not married. So like I, I'm, I use a lot of dating analogies because I think it's relatable in many ways. But um, you get married, you raise the capital. Now they're your partner. What are investors looking for day one after committing that? Because like it's like sales. You know, if I close a contract, the work starts when the deal's closed. 
not just because I pitched it, we closed it, now we go on vacation. Like we have work to do now to deliver on the promise. What are investors looking for after the capital's been successfully raised and the relationship's been sealed to know that, you know, it's it's off on the right start, right? Yeah. They'll push you on your metrics. They'll say, hey, Paul, set goals for the next six months, and then we'll check in with you in six months. You know, they're typically going to be on the board, so they'll monitor your progress through that. Uh, but generally speaking, you'll have a frank conversation about what your goals are for the next three, six, 12 months, and then they'll keep you, hold you accountable to them. Simple as that. Yeah. It, as it should be, to be perfectly honest. Sure. Um, which is why I, I think in free advice for what it's worth, um, I always say like, you know, if you're not going to live with the consequences, then take take a grain of salt. So, um, but that's also why I think it's important to question, do you need capital or do you need to just work harder? You know, and I know that's a bit of a direct thing to say, but I was like, you know, I was, I'll joke around with some of my friends. I mean, like you don't hate your job. You hate the need to be productive on a consistent basis. Understand the distinction and you'll be in a better position to be happy. Sure. But don't like, you don't hate your job. You just don't like that you have things to do consistently. Now, if the things you have to do are the things you don't like, then change your activity, but don't change the need to be consistently productive. productive. They're, exactly. not, they're, not, they're not the same thing, and um, I think sometimes we blame the wrong variable in life. But oftentimes, like, do you need capital? Do you need another partner? Do you need another set of eyes that says what you should do with the company? Or do you need to price your product or service more competitively? Do you need to lower your cost of goods? Like, There are other ways to manage your capital. But I think oftentimes we look at, uh, because the culture of Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and all of these shows that glamorize and glorify the fundraise, um, that sometimes I think we forget about the value of just cash. Sure. <laughs> you know, and but... Working hard. Yeah. Um, are there any common misconceptions that, that people have because of the Shark Tank days where they think it's like, this is just what deal making, like, I, I guess we'll talk about the pitch, right? You show up in the room, sure. like, is it Shark Tank style? We're like, my name is Jeremy Franchese. I run Strategic Branding Studios and I'm looking for 30% and it, like, you just pitch your deal for 11 minutes? Like, yeah, it won't like, go exactly like Shark Tank. You'll typically, so I'm a big fan of Guy Kawasaki. He was the chief evangelist, if that can be a position, but chief evangelist at Apple. And so he wrote a book called The Art of the Start 2.0. And so in that, he writes, like, you got to have 10 slides in a pitch deck. And and when I'm reviewing a pitch deck, I want it to look that same way because it's, it's digestible and it's quick. And so those will typically go that way. So the story you tell, and I'm trying to keep it brief, but, you know, what's the problem? How, what's the solution? How am I going to fix it? Why am I the right person to fix it? So you talk about your team, which is like the biggest, most important part of investing at the early stage. And then we start talking about financials. So when you talk about what are the common misconceptions, I would think almost every first time entrepreneur I talk to is like, Paul, you know, you're a numbers guy. You got your MBA. I want you to look at my, my financial projections. Like, are these looking tight? And I'll say, the only thing an investor needs to know about financial projections that you're putting in front of them is that they're wrong, right? They're all going to be wrong. You have no idea what you're doing right? They don't have to be perfect. Show an investor how you're thinking, right? I think I can get 10% of this market in this place selling at this. And then the investor gets a sense of how you're going to operate, but they're not going to hold you to those financial projections. Biggest misconception is that your financials have to be perfect. Um, Super interesting. The yeah. team element, I think a lot of people forget. When I interviewed, um, uh, it was uh, Pat Ennis and Corby McCordon over at Ennis Legacy Partners. You interviewed Pat? Yeah. Oh, um, I didn't find that episode. They, um, no, they, that, was a, that was a little while back. It was, it was, um, but it was, I asked them about, good guy. Um, yeah, I learned a ton from them. I mean, it was, because I think the, the, the process of selling a company should be perceived in a similar capacity as raising capital because it's just a micro purchase. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they talked a lot about was obviously the recurring revenue and obviously the, 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 um, the financials. But one of the, the things they really talked a lot about was, you know, is it an owner-dependent business? Do you have a team? Do you have sustainable leadership um, 
you know, people in the leadership team, the executive team, that, that if something happens to the CEO, is the business going to fall apart? Is there any true business there, or is it just a human being with tasks extended from them? Um, and so I think that's a really interesting point as to say, like, the numbers can be amazing, but if you are the only thing that can make that business move and you don't have a team, then it's way more of a risk for an investor to, to, to invest with you. Yeah, and that's not to say you can't have a one-person team. Like, if you've got the right person for the job, that investors in the early stage are looking chiefly for a good team, whether it's one person or more. Um, we had we had a situation where uh, we had an investor invest Series A round, local startup. They were in the, the restaurant space, like you spun a wheel, right? And it told you what restaurant to go to. It gets rid of that decision paralysis. And the founder, the team, he had a great team, Chirian Thomas, his name is CEO, a couple guys behind him, Brad and um, Sharish, that were, that were kind of filling in the gaps. And they got this idea that they just couldn't get out of their head. They completely pivoted. Now they put tablets in Ubers, and it's the most entertaining thing you can have in an Uber. And to be there, the the the, the interaction with the investor was the scariest part because they were like, "Hey, listen, we sold you on this one thing, but now we're completely pivoting." And the investor, you know, I'm paraphrasing, was like, "I invested in you guys. You're the team that I wanted to support. I'll I'll jump. You know, we'll do anything together." Right. And that's that's telling of early stage investing. That's really interesting. With, with that in mind, a couple rapid fire ones. Sure. Um, are investors, and again, I'm, I'm kind of creating a, a blanket statement with anybody that can fundamentally give you money to grow your business, sure. are they typically looking for a clear exit plan, or are a lot of them open to the idea of building a sustainable, profitable business without a clear point in time of liquidation or a stock purchase or anything? Like, Do they want you to have a specific end point in mind? Yeah. Uh, again, rapid fire nature here. Uh, later stage investors, PE, looking for a quick exit, right? Or quicker exit. Early stage, not as concerned right? They're in for the long haul. Got it. And then is there anything investors are looking for now that maybe five, seven, eight years ago you found to be less of a, of a key item on the list of priorities? I'll say it's, it's purely anecdotal and it's terrible that this wasn't a, a greater priority in the past, but we're seeing built into almost all of our purchase agreements and an obligation to get, and it's very, it's, it's important, right? Uh, anti-harassment policy. You know, do you have a safe workplace? Um, cause they want to make sure that they're protecting against that risk. That is super interesting. Yeah. Startups, you know, tough place for that, right? Like very insular atmosphere. You don't have an HR department quite yet. Let's make sure you got an anti-harassment policy in place. That's great, though. It shows the investors are starting to... That's another thing, right? Oftentimes, we get stuck in bad behavior. I'm a firm believer it's easier to raise a newborn than raise the dead. Meaning if you're not... In, right. Okay. Like, meaning it's, it's, it's when you're working with people that fundamentally don't want to fix it themselves, I'd rather start over with someone new. Sure. That's, that's the approach. And so my, my point being um, with investors... I know it's harsh, right? <laughs> it's like, I was waiting for a different yeah. uh, metaphor there. Yeah. But, it's, no, it's, it's direct, but my point being with investors, with it's good to hear that they themselves are um, developing and, and modernizing how they invest because there's a lot of new companies out there that have, if you look at a business with their, their financial capital, their human capital, the operating system of the business has changed over the last few years and the modern state of business. And so if the investment community isn't cognizant of that and changing as well, then it's going to be really hard to find partners that understand the game you're playing. Sure. You know, um, which again, sometimes it's fine. Some people don't want all the complexities, but that's a real, I mean, I think workplace discrimination cases went up 50% from 2017 to 2018. Is that right? Something, now, now, part of it could be a more informed you know, populace, right? They're, they're fundamentally knowing more of your employee rights is, is one thing. Sure. But I also think that people are fundamentally aware that, like, wait a minute, this isn't how things, you know, default, yeah, yeah. default design. Is it that way because it's always been or because it was specifically so? Sure. Like, you know, that, that's really, really interesting. Cool. Um, what time we got? Where we at? All right. We got to wrap up in a couple minutes. I hope y'all are enjoying. I'm having fun. I really want to talk about a lot of other stuff. Um, 
I'll, I guess I'll, I'll ask this and then I'll kind of pose the question to you of like anything you wanted to touch on without feeling rushed just to, to give us an idea. Um, you know, you, you got here at Showman Rogers, you know, eight years ago or so. And I think in the world of law, in the world of general professional careers, loyalty is lost. Um, I think that sticking anywhere for more than a few years is an anomaly nowadays. And I'm curious, speaking to um, the whole picture of building good business relationships, um, what are you looking for when looking for clients and people that are inclined to, or even like a firm, right, where you can see beyond a year-long relationship? Like, not directly saying what made you stay here for eight years, but I guess as somebody that's, that's active in the process of loyalty, what are things that you look for in looking at a long-term relationship, whether that's helping clients invest with people, whether it is law firm, whether it's clients, like what are some of the things that you are aware of or thinking about? Yeah. I mean, as long as my head continues to pop off the pillow every morning and that's with respect to the, my relationship with my fiance, my relationship with this firm, my relationship with the clients that we love to support. I mean, like I get up every day and I'm excited. Right. And as long as that doesn't change. Right. That's that's awesome. That's, that's what we're looking for. So for me, Shulman has always been like a family to me. Like they got me when I was 22, 23 coming out of law school. And so I've grown up with these people. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's easy to be loyal when you're in a place where you're comfortable and, and excited. Perfectly said. Awesome. Anything that you want to touch on? Anything that, that's top of mind? It could be business. It could be personal. Anything that you want to share um, while we wrap things up? You know, I think we hit most of the, of the high points. I'll tell you, if I have anything that's burning, we'll come back to this again sometime. Yeah. Um, we'll have some fun. Cool. Um, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, Paul Schwinn, um, go check out on follow LinkedIn, connect the dots. Um, really, really appreciate you stopping by and spending some time with us. Um, and Kendley, I don't mind putting this out there like, you help me with my business and, and actively so. And so I, I want to say like, this isn't an accidental guest. Like I, I, you know, I really appreciate the help and, and, um, helping guide through, through whether it's contracts, whatever we can do. Um, and so with that in mind, everybody, y'all know the deal. Uh, my name is Jeremy Franchese. This is first floor conversations where the view at the top is only as good as the foundation, which preserves it. Stay tuned for more.